the hard part mm-hmm. in a neighborhood association or in a co-working space for that matter it's not hard to get people in the room mm-hmm. it's hard to get them to do anything towards a common goal yeah so how did you do that what is up, my friends? Welcome back to a brand new episode of the Coworking Weekly Show. As always, I'm your host, Alex Hillman, and I want to take this chance to wish you a very, very happy new year. I'm excited to kick off 2017. We've got a ton in store this year uh, for this show and otherwise, but I'm just excited to get into this episode and a lot of the stuff that we have planned, even just for the next few weeks. Uh, before we get into today's episode, which is with a very, very special person who I'm excited to introduce you to, I want to let you know about two quick things. The very first one is to make sure that you are subscribed to this show because in just a couple of weeks, we are having a live Q&A episode of the show. And the best way to find out about how to sign up to be a part of that Q&A show, which has got limited seating. So if you're not signed up, you won't be able to get one of those limited seats is to be subscribed to the show. There's going to be a special episode coming out next week with instructions on how to sign up and be a part of that show. So make sure you're subscribed. Do not miss that very special episode. This is going to be the only place you can find out about it. I'm looking forward to seeing you guys there. The second thing, and this one is specifically for those of you who listen to this show. You might call yourself a community manager, a tumbler, a community activator, whatever you call yourself. If you've been hired by a co-working space to make things hum, to bring people together, we're working on something very special for you. We've been listening to you. We've been talking to lots of folks who are hired to run co-working spaces to understand the problems that you have, the things that you're trying to accomplish, but the things that are also in your way. And so we're building something to try and help you with that stuff. So I want you for the next couple of weeks in particular to be on a very, very close lookout here on the podcast, but as well on my mailing list, coworkingweekly.com. If you are not signed up for the email list, make sure you're on coworkingweekly.com. And we are going to be sending you more details about a new program that we're launching specifically for folks who are hired to run co-working spaces. Now, with that news out of the way, I'm super, super excited to get into today's episode, and I'm just going to leave you with that. I hope you enjoy the show. More than 50 episodes into recording this show, like two and a half years recording this show, there's a name, a character, you might say, in my life, <laughs> who's come up a couple of times, but hasn't actually been on the show itself. And that's my business partner here at Indie Hall, Jeff DeMassey. So I'm super excited to have Jeff come on the show today. We've got a lot of things we're excited to talk about, but I want to start by having Jeff introduce himself because Jeff, it, there's a lot of things about Jeff and I, I want Jeff to start that off. Okay, well, hi, everyone. I actually am pretty excited to be chatting with Alex today. I met Alex when I was running a design studio software development web shop called Punk Ave, and he was talking about co-working, and I instantly was attracted to the idea because of being part of a co-op art gallery, owning the building where, where Punk Ave is, and renting out apartments, and, and being interested in creating community just so the people that would rent, they were part of the part of the family in some ways. We were living there too with my kids and the relationships are more than transactional. The idea of of working in a shared kind of space was also appealing to me from having been in shared studio spaces and art school and the value of that to me personally. And maybe, you know, maybe not everyone is excited about sharing space or whatever, but I certainly was. When Alex said, there's this thing and maybe there wasn't as much form to it as there is whatever 10, 11 years later, <laughs> but it instantly was attractive to to me to to work on something together with Alex. So there's so many more things I could say about my background. I mean, Alex, does that kind of give give a little bit of a... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the interesting things about the way we've worked together over the years has been some ebb and flow. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you are not at Indy Hall every day. Correct. Uh, you're not at Indy Hall most days. Right. Uh, that's starting to change, which mm-hmm. I'm genuinely excited about. Right. But your presence in the room Mm-hmm. You were not o- always there, and a question that I've always gotten is: Jeff's your business partner, right? Like, mm-hmm. th- what do you, what does he work on? Like, how do you guys work <laughs> together? And we can have an entire conversation about how you and I work together as collaborators. Mm-hmm. But part of the reason that I was excited about getting together for an episode of the Coworking Weekly show is because of an element of the role that you've played mm-hmm. in Indie Hall in guiding me, in guiding our direction. There, there's a way that you've always looked at what we're doing from a distance. Mm-hmm. I think that distance, the fact that you're not here every day, mm-hmm. makes you a really valuable asset to me and mm-hmm. to the ongoing direction and execution of Indie Hall. For folks who are like myself, like Adam, like Sam, who spend every day sort of in the operational, I was I was gonna say muck. When you're close to it, it sort of gets tough to see the forest for the trees. Yeah, and I think I think the benefit of the, of the way we've, that Indie Hall has come together with me and you as partners is that we don't get in each other's way either, right? So. So there was never really an issue of us like trying to figure out who would do this or that in, in certain areas. It was pretty clear that you know we had different reasons, different goals around like how we would individually participate or also or different constraints, different constraints yeah. and different things. Yeah, I mean, I had a business going, thriving business, and a family, and a family, and so it was never possible for me to say like I'm going to do this full time. There was also something that I remember early, early on in the fact that you did not need space. Like you had your studio, which had its own office. Like, And it was one of those things that made it very easy to anchor mm-hmm. the Indie Hall was not about needing space, but about needing there to be an ecosystem and what happens when that ecosystem has a place it can go. Yeah, exactly. I mean, not only did we have a space for, not only was I running a, a design studio out of a space, I owned that space. My wife and I own that space. So... It wasn't like, oh, well, when the lease runs out, we'll just move into Indie Hall or something. Or, well, you know, it always was like, well, you know, we have this space. We've it was a shell. We renovated it. There was a lot of um, love and and um, effort put into it. And um, in a neighborhood that we really care about in South Philly, where, you know, we started this civic association and been very involved civically, which is also another influence on Indie Hall. What I learned as being um, a community leader in that capacity it was so it was really never an issue, but I and I think that's where the term, you know, clubhouse came for me. I would look around and think of places you can pop into where people know you and appreciate you and that there's like a you know, we talked a lot about trusts and in, in the early years and I'm sure I'm sure we still talk about that in, in different capacities, maybe not always using you even use that word, but that's the foundation. Oh, we do. Mm-hmm. If there's a recurring theme on this show, it's definitely where where that trust comes from and trust and relationships are having those really, really tight interlocking interlocking components. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's a, actually a big part of why we work together too. I mean, I know that I trust you. So I didn't need to be there day to day to worry whether or not Indie Hall would be what it needed to be in my scene or the values that I believed in. So that was a big part of it. Right. I saw Indie Hall as an opportunity for the community to just get better together, to grow together, to help each other get together. I mean, you know, the early people who got together, it wasn't like we're like, let's get all the rock stars in some category of whatever and get together. It was just like who's interested in being involved and who wants to grow together and who wants to develop relationships. And some people were really accomplished in some skill or not. And other people have, you know, moved from one one sort of profession to another in a sense or their tactics they use are different because they learn things here, whatever. But for me, it was that clubhouse that, that I saw as the real reason that I wanted Indie Hall to exist, and I saw that being of value to people and to the city, to the neighborhood, et cetera. Well, and that getting better together is the thing that I want to dive into today. It's mm-hmm. something that I think is 
is still 10 years later at the mm -hmm. heart of why Indie Hall exists. And I look at this time of year, it is we're heading into the new year. By the time folks are listening to this, it'll be early 2017. Co-working spaces get to benefit from a economic dynamic that a lot of other businesses mm -hmm. do, like gyms, where people are making sort of a New Year's resolution. I'm going to take myself a little more seriously. I'm going to up my game in 2017. We've had people join Indie Hall basically as a present to themselves for hitting a revenue milestone or staying in business for their first full year as a freelancer or whatever it might be. So there's that mark of achievement. And there's something really interesting in that space between being in a co-working space as a mark of achievement and achieving together. And that achieving together, I think, is where Indie Hall hits its stride. And I look at some of the best co-working spaces in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, I look at some of the programming that they run. And it's not, not the stuff where someone is on stage bestowing information, mm -hmm. but more of sort of a collective achievement. So I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about how you see that, because there's a part of your background that you only barely touched on before. When you and I met, you were actually a, a professor. That's true. As well, yeah, right. Um, and I'm <laughs> curious how your influence as an educator, as well as a father and mm. an employer and mm. a leader of this community or civic community, Indie mm. Hall, like, what are help me string together some of the components of where that notion of achieving together comes from, and how is that different from just sort of swallowing up information and setting a mark and going for it? Yeah, um, at the time I was a full time professor. That was you know, in multimedia at UARTS here in Philadelphia. And I mean, I've noticed there's a recurring theme that I, as a kid, I played team sports and I also played tennis. It was just like a thing our family played. And I, I didn't like playing singles tennis. I liked playing doubles and I liked playing team sports. And I've noticed that um, uh, even though I can perform at a high level individually in sports, as an example, I always play better on a team. And I think ultimately it has to do with like, for me, I know that like it brings out like really good aspects of who I am, which, um, you know, like I can easily like self doubt or I'm not good enough or I'm not important enough or what does it matter if I win? But when I'm on a team, it's like, okay, well, I want the team to do well. I want the team to succeed in its goals, whether that's like win, say, in a sports thing or in, you know, something like Indy Hall or in a community, um, you know, in South Philly, in the Passing Square Civic Association, it was like, I want us to have more trees. I want us to have more community gathering places. I want us to have pride in our, our community. And, you know, sometimes you don't feel like you deserve it, but it's like, it's much easier to feel like we deserve it and we should get better together. And like that kind of pushes and inspires people. And that's, you know, that's some external influence and, you know, accountability stuff, which is valuable. You do also have to believe in yourself. But I think there's a nice thing when things when you're a little down or you're not you know, having a great situation and you know that other people are rooting for you or believe in you, the value of that. There's something about it tied to momentum because mm -hmm. um, you mentioned you know, group accountability. And, and I've talked on this show a couple of times in the past about how I, I think a lot of group accountability actually goes wrong. Sure. And the most common thread of where group accountability becomes problematic is when it becomes an excuse for not doing things. Mm -hmm. sort of an, it's sort of like the, the mm -hmm. Newton's laws of physics, but for, for yeah. people and for action. Right. If you surround yourself with people who are not taking action and making excuses, you find ways to not take action and make excuses. Uh -huh. But if you surround yourself with people that are have momentum mm -hmm. or accomplishing things, achieving things, mm -hmm. there's a bunch of things that are at play. Everything from, mm -hmm. well, what's different between her and me? She did it. What Maybe what can I learn from her about mm -hmm. how I can do that? Mm -hmm. Or sure. yeah. you know, or just the, the slight social pressure of other people are getting stuff done. 
I don't want to be the only slacker in the room. I better better pick up my game. And there's a whole range of things in between. So mm-hmm. just noticing where moment, momentum is and, and placing yourself in it or what I think is potentially more interesting for the folks listening to this show is how do you create that momentum when it doesn't already exist? So we could talk about some things here at Indie Hall, but one of the, the examples that you've brought up a couple of times now is the, the Civic Association, which I think of Civic Association, I immediately think inaction. Mm-hmm. Um, they're sort yeah. of n- notorious uh-huh. for being, you know, the, the worst of groupthink and, <laughs> you know, people having strong opinions about things that don't really matter all that much. And then mm-hmm. people really caring about important things, but being frustrated by, you know, mm-hmm. the dissenting voices and just nothing getting done. And so mm-hmm. I know that Pass Young Square Civic, mm-hmm. which you play a, a major part in, in founding and mm-hmm. organizing and then after handed off to continue to run successfully became a sort of a model civic association for other neighborhoods in the city and from some stories you've told me and just bits and pieces that i know about the way you approach things i wonder if you looking back have any any insights on what made passyunk civic able to build momentum because i feel like once it's in motion Mm -hmm. you're going to attract a different category of people who are already in motion but the hard part Mm-hmm. in a neighborhood association or in a co-working space for that matter. It's not hard to get people in the room. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get them to do anything towards a common goal. Yeah. So how did you do that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things that I'm thinking of off the top of my head. One thing is like I just had a deep love for the neighborhood and that just sort of drove me to do what I thought I would do sort of anything to include everyone. So I wasn't trying to create something to, to amass power. And sometimes that happens in civic associations. It's a stepping stone to politics or or just whatever, just wanting to control something. Yeah, I just sort of fell in love with the neighborhood and also just was a little sad to see people not feeling proud of their neighborhood. My grandmother had grown up in that neighborhood and she had said, it was sort of a crazy story, but I, w- I was watering trees that we had planted in the neighborhood in front of my house. My mom calls me and said, your grandmother used to say she wanted to come back to South Philly and plant flowers for everyone to make it beautiful. You know, something like that. And I just like, you know, you can't help but like tear up and be like, oh, my God, I'm doing that work in some funny way. I'm like literally watering flowers under the tree that I planted in South Philly. So knowing that people like my grandmother who had moved out of the neighborhood to Germantown, another section in Philadelphia and then beyond, you know, totally different places after that. Knowing that people like her were still in the neighborhood. I didn't have any interest in like getting rid of the old time neighbors. I didn't not want to hear what their thoughts or opinions. They could be they could have been my grandmother. Right. And I also, there was, there's been tremendous immigration in the neighborhood. There was, you know, the Vietnamese evacuation in the 70s. A lot of people ended up, there was a huge population in South Philly, all, you know, all kinds of waves, Jewish, German, Italian, now Mexican, et cetera. And so it's a really diverse neighborhood. And so you had to figure out ways to hear and listen to people. And that meant that you just couldn't, you had to get out of your own way and like the, your own worldview. Cause I didn't grow up in a, in a place as diverse as, as Philadelphia in general. So you, how did you spend a lot of time listening? What do people care about? And that only came because I really wanted something that was for everybody because I really love the neighborhood. And I thought like, well, everybody's here. Like this is our neighborhood, you know? So that's one thing. The other thing is like, I just kept my eyes out for just to invite everyone in. I remember like when somebody moved in, I would just like knock on their door. Hey, you know, I and I'm not even the kind of person that like, so I think people see me as out, like maybe more outgoing, but like I, I'm kind of like that's a scary thing for me to go up to the tour and knock on and say hey you should get involved in this thing but i would just like invite people in like hey we're doing this thing and it started out first i didn't know where even where to start we started a town watch that was a little bit weird i the idea that i would be doing a town watch as a kid who had 
been sort of like a more counterculture kid growing up um, in college and stuff. I was like, I'm forming to town watch. This doesn't make any sense. But anyway, and then eventually um, you joined forces with this uh, woman, Sue Montella, who was organizing her block against, a, there was a problem bar at the end of her block. And then she, she met me and we were sort of organizing around another, around cleaning up parks and, and a, this other problem bar that was causing disturbances and blah, blah, blah. And once again, I can't, I couldn't believe I was organizing neighbors around a problem <laughs> bar because like I'd been in many bars over yeah, the years. I was, I drank at that bar. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, I mean, it was, it, and, and so there was just a lot of um, uncomfortable places that I had to go to and learn a lot about what motivates other people. And I think, you know, just, just always just I'm not I can't even remember your question. What was your question again? So the question and I'm going <laughs> to extract a couple of things okay. from what you said. Yeah. The question for those listening and maybe lost track of that as well is how, how do you take something uh, that does not have inherent momentum mm -hmm. and, and build it? Mm -hmm. And two things that I heard you say that I think are super interesting. And I'm going to work backwards. Mm -hmm. One is that notion of an invitation, sort of noticing opportunities mm -hmm. to bring people into mm -hmm. a small action that they might already care about. Yeah. Right? And we talk about that a bunch on this show at Indie Hall. Mm -hmm. It's not about getting people to do things. It's about noticing what other people would already maybe like to do and finding a way to invite them to do it, ideally with other people who also want to do it. Because yeah. there's almost always in, in any group of people larger than 20, 25 people, there are more than one person who wants the same thing, but they don't know that somebody else in that group of people wants the same thing. Yeah. yeah. So finding out ways to unlock that and bring that conversation to the surface, uh, we sort of described that used to use the term tumbling seems like it was a part of, you know, it's, oh, people care about this bar as a problem or people care mm -hmm. about trees and flowers. And mm -hmm. those, there might be some overlap in those people. There might be different people, but just sort of noticing the things that people care about and building mm -hmm. group actions, group uh, efforts around them. Yeah. The other thing that you said at the beginning that was a little more subtle about the generational component to the neighborhood, that there are people that were already there. You didn't want to change the way it was. You just wanted to make it available to more people mm -hmm. is this notion. And I see this happening in a lot of a lot of co-working spaces and a lot of cities that are putting effort and money towards like innovation centers and stuff like that. And is mm -hmm. this really, really kind of strange attitude of making something better. And I always correlate it to mm -hmm. that feeling when somebody's like, hey, did you lose a bunch of weight? Which is like a, the nicest way possible of saying, hey, you used to be really fat. Sure, yeah. And when you approach building momentum in a neighborhood it, or in a city, in a mm -hmm. co-working space, it could be very easy to say, hey, y'all are looking kind of lazy. Mm -hmm. We should probably pick up the slack and make this place better. Yeah. But the word better is like dangerously loaded with – well, what's wrong with it to begin with? It's pretty judgmental, right? Yeah. I mean, what I mean, that, I think that's the lucky thing I had. I, I couldn't, even if I, you know, human nature is to be judgmental, I couldn't look down on my grandmother, right? So I got lucky. I got a break, right? So it made me really listen and understand people. And I, I, there's other neighborhoods in Philadelphia where it's almost like it's almost like Disneyland for for you know the people moving in because there was nothing there. So it's like okay, we're just going to kind of put a fake new neighborhood in here in the neighborhood that we were in in South Philly. There were people there for a long, long time, generations, very rooted people. And there were people that had moved out and moved back. And there was just so many layers, right? So it would have been really judgmental to just be like, oh, these people, that they need to be better in some way or they're doing something wrong or, um, or whatnot. And, and it, it would have created like a separation. And I think it would have been a lot less successful in the long run because a lot of what happened was some of the very rooted people with a lot of connections and relationships and, you know, went to elementary school with this person, with that person. As they got involved, 
they started to like open doors for us too, right? So, so we got to tap into deep history and relationships that it would take us years to build. And so like coming in, I think like the co-working model where someone comes in and like, there's something wrong with the city and we need to attract millennials or something is a really, I think, bizarre idea. And it just sort of discredits all the great people that are already there. And I know that, you know, in the founding of Indy Hall, we took a very different approach. I know that you were out there finding and connecting, and you've talked a lot about this before, but people already doing things and just kind of bringing people together in different ways as a, an important starting point. And I think there's a lot of similarities that we weren't just like, oh, Philadelphia has nothing going on. There's nobody here doing anything cool or interesting or meaningful. Even though it kind of felt that way. It did feel that way. And people would say that. But once people started to come together in Indy Hall, and once people started to come together in the neighborhood, it changed. I mean, one of my favorite stories is there was a guy who would show up at zoning meetings. And in zoning meetings, they would happen once a month. And somebody wants to do something that's outside the zoning code. They want to add a roof deck or build on more than 70% of their property because you need to have like 30% open for water, things like that, right? Um, there was a guy who'd show up and complain a lot. And he would often like tell a story like, my wife's family has been here for three generations and this is not how things used to be done or whatever. There would be a lot of, you know, I think he was feeling disenfranchised, right? So one day I was walking down Broad Street, one of the main north-south streets here in Philadelphia, and he was walking too. And I just went over to him and I said, hey, John, which was his name, would you like to join the zoning committee? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, Okay. We talked a little bit and, you know, I, he did a little more venting, I think, in that walk. If I, I can't remember. It was years ago now. But um, he did join it. He ended up becoming leading the zoning committee. And people talk about him as being one of the best leaders of the zoning committee in the neighborhood. And he continued on after I left the board, after I stepped down as president. And, you know, I could have never invited him in, right? I had the power in a sense. But inviting in, it changed everything. Now, he became a participant in a totally different way. All right, and I have to. I have to ask. <laughs> uh, so, you, so you spent weeks, months, maybe years observing this guy appear a troublemaker uh -huh. to a group. What was going through your head when you decided to ask him to join the zoning committee? Like, was that a, was a was that premeditated? B was that sort of an in the moment? Maybe this is what you need. Like, do you remember what drove that impulse? I think I had started to learn things along the way. Um, it probably had been months. It probably had been like maybe less than a year when he had been coming to meetings and, and things like that. But I started to really notice that um, a couple of things. One, if somebody's really passionate, they're showing up. I mean, there's probably something to tap into. There's some energy, right? It's so much because <laughs> the alternative is the people that are sitting at home watching football or whatever. And like, it's way harder to get them in the door and then turn them into something. This guy's at least showing up. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like in sales or whatever. If like, if someone's talking to you, <laughs> that's better than just finding some random person, right? In this case, He's showing up. He cares, obviously. I could have chosen to take, you know, to start to just battle with him and make him my arch enemy and, and like, look at why we're different. And there were lots of differences in our background and our approach and, our, and the, some of the things. But I also had to take a leap of faith and trust that, like, when people are given responsibility, they'll do good with it. Like, they'll actually start to factor in a more rounded perspective. I think when you show up and you're complaining, and I've been that punk rocker who is like, take down the government, I don't care what shows up, you know, whatever kind of just not this, right. But then when you're in power, then you usually who knows what will happen in every circumstance. But I've noticed that like people actually take it seriously, and they start to recognize that they represent broader people and perspectives. And they have to kind of, they can't be the complainer, they have to be the doer, and they have to think about 
all those issues. Yeah, you have a couple of options of ways to approach it. But if you set a bar high and invite people to step up to it, mm -hmm. they get to choose. They either step up to it and mm -hmm. excel, thrive, or, yeah. or maybe they just get – maybe they don't even thrive. They just get the job done, which yeah. is better than complaining. Mm -hmm. Or they choose not to step up, and then, and then at least you know. Yeah, well, next time if you didn't step up, the next meeting, if you showed up complaining, we could say, well, John, we invited you to be on the board. <laughs> And you chose not to. So like what, what are you hoping to accomplish, right? So right. the invitation is the key part to your point, like inviting people in. They could say no. I've, I've used that a lot in a lot of my work. You know, we're doing problem solving kinds of things and engaging people, different stakeholders. That is something I've carried with me, which is like even if you think that person is going to be hard to deal with, hard to work with, invite them because it's better to invite them. And then you have you're in a different position. You can always say I did invite you and I invited you into this process, then it's up to you to sort of be generous and, and listen and and actually like force yourself not to just be like, well, I, I already figured all this out. And there's nothing that anyone with a different perspective can possibly add to this conversation. And it, it generally works. Every once in a while, somebody is just not willing to engage in some thoughtful way and some compromise or some whatever. But most of the time, it's a, a valuable way to move forward, I found. All right. So I want to bring this back to the contemporary conversation where we started around mm -hmm. year beginning, goal setting, mm -hmm. and then getting people into into momentum mm -hmm. as, as a group. Honestly, we're already seeing it in December. We had some members strike up conversations about their 2017 goals. Mm -hmm. They're taking the time to write them down. And other people said, well, wait a second. Can, can I write down my goals and can we talk about them together? And I'm seeing this sort of bubbling and it's very, very exciting. Mm -hmm. And Back in episode 41 of the Coworking Weekly show, I did a little exercise that I learned from you. Okay. We're inviting folks to share some of their hopes and dreams, sort of beyond the immediate goal that I want to accomplish this week, this month. But like, where am I headed? Sort of that, where's mm -hmm. the North Star that I'm moving towards mm -hmm. in the next two to five years or so in a couple of different realms. And it's been fun. For those of you who haven't listened to episode 41, go back to it, check it out, go through the exercise, have a pen and paper ready because it is an actual thing that you should sit down and do. And at the end, I invite you to share what you wrote down with me, just with me. I'm not sharing with anybody else without your permission. I've been getting some incredible responses from episode 41 from that exercise. And one of the super interesting uh, components to that exercise is how many people are saying, you know, hey, this was tough. Like, mm -hmm. I'm so used to thinking about the thing I've got to do like today, tomorrow, this week, next mm -hmm. week, whatever the looming deadline is. I didn't really give myself the space to, to look forward. And then the magic sentence, well, if I'm honest, which is something I want to I want to dig into a little bit with you, Jeff. What happens when people start stepping away from the day-to-day -day work and set a bigger objective mm -hmm. for months or years? So for the people that are sitting down to think about their 2017 goals for their co-working space or the people who I think would do great to bring their community together around setting those goals together mm – -hmm. And looking for common themes and threads, I want—I would love for you to explain a little bit of the origin of this exercise, um, wh where you learned it from, where it's developed from. Have you developed it into new things since I learned it from you? What is it about the components of it that you think work? And why do people feel compelled to say, well, if I'm being honest, because <laughs> I'm so fascinated yeah. by, well, why wouldn't you be? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's so many layers to this. Starting with that, I mean, I think it's difficult for people to uh, sometimes face the real dream they have for themselves.
Because I think a lot of us have a lot of hurdles, a lot of reasons why it's difficult to actually live in a way that they, in the vision that you have of, of like what's possible for you. There's like a bunch of things in the way. And I think a lot of people, when they set goals, they start to like talk about habits. I need to walk every day. I need to lose weight. Blah, blah, blah. That's all irrelevant. That stuff is meaningless without having a vision for yourself in the future. And in the description you talked about, in the exercise you talked about, which we did several years ago at an indie hall retreat that I led, it's funny, I haven't done that exercise in a while. So it's awesome to hear that it's, it's living on in exactly that way. But the spirit of, what, of that exercise has a lot to do with um, alignment. I'm really interested in, and one of the things that I have done at Punk Ave and for other people, I'm really interested to know if your dreams are aligned with the work you're doing, whatever that work is, like at your company you're working at, at a project you're organizing, leading, whatever it is, not doing something out of obligation or, you know, because, you know, whatever you need, just the money or you're, or you just think it's the right thing to do because it's what you see other people doing. You haven't actually like taken the time to put it in the arc of whatever it is that you're working towards. And you're like, well, that's what everybody else does. So I must, that, that must be the right thing to do. That's what everybody else is talking about. Or, you know, every, everyone else started a podcast. Why, why don't I should probably start a podcast. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it goes back to like who you surround yourselves with too, to some degree. I mean, I, I was just thinking to my in my head, like your mom would always say, like, if your friend jumped off the bridge, would you? And I always think, well, I never hang out with friends who jump off bridges, so, <laughs> so that shouldn't be a problem. But I think that, I think, yeah, I mean, um, you know, going to art school, when you're an artist, everything you do, you sort of understand has having meaning, right? So every decision you make, if you're painting or creating an installation or whatever, we know as artists that it has an impact you know, a visual way in which something is received has a, an effect in the brain, which affects the body. And we know that like every aspect of the way someone experiences something, there's artists who like craft, you know, the way you walk into a space where you're going to experience the work of art. Some, some artists like spend hours, you know, preparing the wall around the place they're hanging the painting. Those kinds of things are really interesting to me and have always have really influenced me and my work. And I feel a lot of I just viscerally feel a lot of pain when I know it's out of alignment. When I'm like, oh, this is, I don't really believe in this. Or when like, the <laughs> words and the actions don't match up. Yeah, and I think for a lot of people, they're just like, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. Like the work you do every day, you go to work and then you, then you live like outside of work. So I don't mean to be judgmental for anyone who's having a problem aligning that right now, but I think it's worth at least knowing where you're at. <laughs> kind of being aware of like, is this work actually related to does it support the values I have? Does it allow me to live to my fullest self? Those kinds of things. So, so a lot of times I've had people write down their dreams and whatnot, and then kind of like pick their top three or things like that, or write down some, uh, you know, try to create a vision for themselves. Like who is who are who is your ideal self? Is one an exercise I've done with people, and then what's the real self? Like who are you now, and what's the gap, and how can you get between that? And then everything else, losing weight, walking, well, those are just tactics to get to the ideal self, that vision of yourself. And so I think, I think if somebody shows up at a co-working space and they just, maybe they're just exhausted or maybe they don't know what, or just show up at a gym and hope that that's going to change everything. It depends on the sort of mindset and the way in which they show up. They show up like, and yoga is like hands open and you're like, I'm open to anything. And they may find something and it may just be a, a bit of exploration and and maybe that's part of the value of like a great strong community of people who are looking to help other people or to bring people into things or you know someone shows up and they just get oh there's someone who just posted on the list about this thing so let me join in i would almost in that case probably shouldn't have too many goals just like just show up and participate and engage but if you show up and you think like that's the that's the answer it's probably not going to have positive just showing up 
um, and not engaging or not. It's just that's just more of a habit or something, right? Like, right. I mean, we can draw that back to what you were saying with the Civic Association. People that are just showing up, you can dig a little bit and find out what it is that they're working on, working towards, and use clues to invite them into things that are already going on or invite them to start new things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and one of the things that I always try to keep in mind in all my work and in the Civic Association especially, like you can ask the city to plant trees for you. And you can get on a list, and then you can complain that it takes three years or whatever it is, or maybe Which they is exactly lost the, what happens. <laughs> they lost the form or whatever. Or you can try to amass power and then complain with more influence and get trees a little faster. I had no interest in doing that. I thought like every way in which we so if we're going to plant trees, let's make it volunteer. If we're going to water the trees, let's make it volunteer. And ways in which people can do it together, and then they're much more invested. And in fact, like for instance, with the trees, we had a thing where if you got five people on your block or more to sign up for a tree, we would prioritize your block and do the next volunteer planting on your block. All kinds of things. One, it forces you to get to know your neighbors if you don't, or if you do, great, you, you talk to them. You're the best person to talk to them anyway. Like me, if I don't live on that block, I probably have looser connections to people there or none. Then we go and we plant them together. Like the people plant the trees together, then you're more likely to care for it. So having the city come in and plant the tree, I should, it'd be interesting to know a study that's probably like a higher percentage of the trees die versus if a community plants the tree, if the neighborhood, the block, the people that live right there plant the tree, it probably lives longer, more likely to survive. We, we just talked about this in the episode about Fermata, about my, my uh, Fermata tattoo, mm -hmm. where there's, um, we were talking about a TED talk where there was a whole collection of orchestra conductors conducting their orchestras in different styles on one end of the spectrum, a very commanding approach on the other, a more subtle approach where they really let the musicians look to each other for cues rather than just to the conductor. And the question that I brought up is essentially the same one that you did, which is, I believe that both of those conductors are capable of conducting an orchestra, but the orchestra that they conduct is inherently different in the same way that the neighborhood that receives trees from the city versus plants themselves will be inherently different. The health of the trees the mm -hmm. uh, maybe is representative of mm -hmm. the relationships of, uh, between the people. And I'm curious what in, in the, the TED Talk in the orchestra example, do they have a harder time? I'm keeping and retaining musicians. What is the difference between a musician who is attracted to an orchestra conducted by a commanding conductor? Who do you attract and who do you retain becomes an outcome of the way you choose to solve the problem. In both cases, you get trees. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there's side effects that you're part of the, the ecosystem of the action. Yeah. And I, I mean, you know, in the case with, say, the first large scale volunteer planting we did. Um, we'd done a couple smaller ones, but then we did like about 25 trees around a park in the neighborhood. You know, a lot of other people who are experts, Pennsylvania Horticulture Society, they were sort of, they were skeptical that we would actually pull it off, believe it or not. And so we, we did a bunch of things, got a grant and kind of even like really pushed to get, to get a bunch of things together, got some, an organization to support cutting the tree pits. And, and then it was a rainy day and we had to unload all these trees from a truck and we didn't have like the best way to do it. All these people showed up, and some people from Pennsylvania Horticulture Society, PHS, showed up, and they had, you know, they've led a lot of tree planting things, but never at this scale of volunteer had they seen, you know, in bad weather, people showing up together to put the trees in the ground, and they were actually really inspired. They were like, that was amazing. Like, that made them feel better about their work, and then we went on, what was great is we went on to do something called wine and water. We, we got wagons. We'd filled them up 
with wine and tools and whatnot, and we'd go around and water the trees every week as a community. And the side effect of that was, well, first of all, it's probably illegal to have the wine out on the street, whatever. We didn't worry too much about that. Um, but it created a social event for people to come together. We cared for the trees, but also like conversations like, oh, so uh, what about this? It sparked other action in the neighborhood, right? So we had a weekly thing, a weekly reason to get together that was both social, so people enjoyed it. It did a practical thing because trees do need water. <laughs> um, and nobody lived there because around a park, right? So it's especially important. But, you know, like I said, it triggered these other, I can't even remember all the details, but I just remember it being very important that we gathered weekly and that things grew. And it just makes you feel good, you know, to be together with, with your neighbors and to start to, you know, continue to build relationships with them. What's new these days and in, in how you set goals and how other people set goals? Because I think going all the way back to the beginning of this episode, a big part of the role that you've played at Indie Hall is helping me think about how I set goals and how we as a community set goals and how people in our community as individuals set goals and achieve them together. One of the, I mean, so one of the things that I have spent a lot of time using or utilizing or leading people in or using for myself is very much around vision. So, you know, pick a time out five years, 10 years, 15 years in the future and write a version of yourself 15 years, if you were living your ideal life, what are you doing? I got that from uh, Zingerman's Deli in, out in uh, Michigan. So I'm, I'm always just out there. I'm always looking for ways that people are, are doing this kind of stuff and trying things out. But in, his, in the example that he gave, it's, you know, write it as, you know, what are you smelling? What are you tasting? What are you touching? Like, get it as visceral as possible. And then spend a little time, like, and this may be combining some other things too, but spend a little time just being in that space. Like, just visualize that space for a while. See how good it feels and then you know like then think about okay what's the gap like what do i need to do in between now and that five years or ten years because that just gives clarity or focus it's easy to make a list of things you ought to do should do somebody else wants you to do your mom thinks you should do whatever um you think that it's the right thing to do but it's actually i think a lot easier to start to visualize ideal, what you'd want to be doing in an ideal day, five or 10 years in the future. And I think probably there's a component that's going to be related to personal, related to family, community, work. All these levels are just going to be in there and think about that too. So what is your family doing? Where do you live? What's the community like? I think that vision exercise can encompass some of the elements that the exercise you talked about. You know, I think sometimes like the thing that that I really think is important is how do you be honest with yourself, like you said earlier, and really listen to yourself too, and not, you know, do what you think you ought to do. I think that's, that's important. And I think one of the things, like, if I'm going to be honest, <laughs> I definitely feel like I've helped people in this kind of stuff. And sometimes I look at myself and I think, well, that's for other people. That's for other people who are going to achieve these amazing things in life. And like, and my Real satisfaction comes from helping other people achieve their amazing visions for themselves. I think I've, I've, had a, I've come to be aware of that over the last year, that that was just an excuse for myself, right? That I was helping other people achieve these amazing visions for themselves, but not for myself. So I think the only reason I'm talking about that is I think there's always something, there's always some way to get deeper and to understand what you really care about, really where you want to be and what's in the way of that. Even for somebody like myself, who's very deep into this, you know, tries to face the hard things <laughs> for myself or whatever, you can just convince yourself that like, well, this is my work. And yeah, I, I mean, I see that in a lot of folks who, who start co-working spaces, who lead co-working spaces, who are hired to run co-working spaces, they get an immense amount of satisfaction around helping the people around them succeed, or in some cases, not even helping, just being in proximity to other people achieving and mm -hmm. in motion. 
but never stop to figure out what it is that they want for themselves. Yeah. And it's almost, you know, to a degree, I think the there's a danger of the high that mm. comes with being in a co-working space and being surrounded by mm -hmm. things that are on the spectrum from impactful to simply exciting and not taking a second to step back and saying, well, that that's that is all of those things. That's great. But what am I doing with it? Not just for other people, but f for myself. Where, where am I in this? What am I getting out of this? And mm -hmm. I, I think it's one of the leading contributors to burnout in yeah. the co-working community building industry is people come in, they give immensely or mm -hmm. they surround themselves with a set of expectations mm -hmm. and they never take a second to step back and go, well, wait a second. It, what, what am I working towards or designing all those interactions mm -hmm. around something that's going to get them closer to a bigger picture goal. And I think part of that is people coming in simply inexperienced. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the reality is, is most people that are wearing the title of community manager, this is their first time doing that, mm -hmm. right? It's a fairly young industry under that under that title. Yeah. Um, a lot of people starting co-working spaces are first time business owners. So mm -hmm. they're not just dealing with co-working stuff, but also it's like first time running, operating a business, all those sorts of things as well. So, you know, I think we, we end up with a lot of weight of just getting the job done. I, I get emails in my inbox every single week from people that are their number one stressor is opening the door, mm -hmm. like literally getting the door to a new co-working space open. And I, to be honest, really get excited when I get to tell somebody that is the least exciting day of your life. Yeah. The destination is not the co-working space. Yeah. Running a co-working space. That's what I would say. I mean, I, I think I saw what you did there. Yeah. Good, like <laughs> that, I think, is exactly the problem that I had in that work I was doing. And I, and I think exactly people leading co-working spaces, I could see that happening because people who I would assume a lot of a lot of you care about people. A lot of you want to see people fulfill their dreams and goals and that you've lost track of your own and you think your goal is to open and run a co-working space. But that, I always say like co-working is a really boring business in terms of its logistical functional aspect, like the challenges of it, of like of space, right? They'll just wear you out, it's just boring. But those things become light work if you are heading towards your own vision, right? So like you are not gonna get burned out if like you are on a path that you're excited about. And even if it takes you five years to get there or 10 years to get there, if you know that every day you're getting closer to that, all the other stuff, like the part of running the, the space, you're never gonna complain about them. And you're gonna find ways around making that all work. I mean, I think one of the things that we did well in Indy Hall was like, we didn't make it our goal to run a co-working space as like the top goal. We always said like, there's other things we want to achieve as well. And like, we want to lead and participate or do different aspects of, and that we see Indy Hall being an important place for people, a community of trust and all those things. But it wasn't the end point for yeah. us. The place is a tool in a tool belt of yeah. lots of other tools. Yeah. I mean, even when we started and, you know, I know that when we brought on someone to help us run the space, when Dana was the first, uh, I forget. Den mother. Den mother. I was going to say that, but I don't, yeah. You know, one of the things that I know when we got like, you know, got coffee or something around the corner here and talked about was like, we can't make Dana be working for Indy Hall only. We have to have her also have goals and support her in something bigger and be a member of the community, right? And like that, I think, you know, I, I try to think of myself as a member of Indy Hall in that way, a member of the community um, today. And, you know, even as you said, I've been coming to, I've actually been working out of Indy Hall more lately since, since the move. So I guess that's about four months. And I'm just here as a member, you know, and I am enjoying what that means to be, right? Like I'm not coming in here expecting anything 
um, different from anyone else. You know, I ha I'm on a path and I'm trying to like work towards the things that I want to achieve. I want to basically, I want to work towards the vision of my life, right? That I want to live. <laughs> and, that, and part of that is, is being here, you know, in different ways. So I want to end on that note and ask you a question that we like to ask guests on the show, which is at this point in your life, and it sounds like you're maybe forming or remolding this in a way. What does a perfect day of work look like for you? Oh, man. That's totally hard to answer right this second, but I can probably answer it. I think for me, it, it includes time to reflect and work on something, um, to make something, to create something as, as sort of key for me. Um, so that could be writing something, like in, like synthesizing thoughts and writing something together or physically making something. You know, I, I background as an artist, I like days where I would print things, you know, design and make something, print silkscreen something or put together something or, um, you know, lead, you know, I really love leading re retreats or, you know, designing that experience. So if I'm sitting there spending, oh, how, what, what exercises am I going to do with people and building out some sort of deck to lead them and maybe creating some exercises, like tools that support those like papers that I might give to people or whatever it is. To me, that is an important part of my day now, making something. And it doesn't have to be like one particular thing. And I think um, I spent a lot of days over the last several years of my career being, you know, I used to say like I do a lot of blocking for people so that they could they could carry the ball, right? So like you go over here and you be the, you know, the person doing some productive work that we're making something that we're going to give to a client or whatever it is. I'm going to run interference yeah, and make and sure I'm, you don't have interruptions. Yeah, so you have no interruption. I'm going to take all, all that because like I can do, I'm, you know, I'm actually pretty good at that. I'm good at like just fielding unexpected things or, you know, and just because I'm good at it doesn't mean that I enjoy it, right? So, so yep. you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that's, I think, you know, I, I could see that being a problem for a lot of people. And so I really have come to recognize that I, I just need to make something, to move something forward in a way that is, you know, taking together disparate thoughts or just bringing together parts or, or, or something for me to feel happy and satisfied in a day. And, you know, I could, if I spend the first hour of the day making something, like basically the rest of the day, I'm like, whatever. Like, I'm good. I could, you know, someone could need, I don't know, whatever. There could be all kinds of, like, crazy things that happen after. And if I felt satisfied because I've made something, I, I just feel really, really good about it. So if you're all you're doing is reacting all day long, and, and I've, I've been, there's been many days and all I was doing is reacting to email, to people, to problems that came up, to whatever it is, and just being like, okay, that's my job. I'm supposed to do that. At the end of the day, I'm burnt out, and I'm, I think my brain still wants to make something. So I go home, and with my kids, I'm distracted. I'm like, I think my body's telling me, you still need to make something like to feel, you know, I don't know. But I don't know. I think that's that's probably the the best the best way I can answer right now. And I mean, I know that I'm feeling like more and more inspired to, you know, start shooting, making films again, to start recording and telling stories again. And I think even I'll be honest, like I think I there was a period of time when I think I even lost confidence that I could do it. Because I had spent so much time blocking for other people and running interference and orchestrating. And I thought, well, maybe now what I do is run companies or run things. And like, that's my skill. But having an opportunity to go back into that, I realized, wait, actually, I'm better at this now. All these other experiences in my life have actually improved my, my ability to do the, the making as well for whatever reason. So it's not, I don't regret the things that I did or have done or this, this chops that I've developed in other ways. It's like cross-training maybe or something. But now I, you know, I think I've started to recognize, have confidence again that I can be a maker, which is important to me. Sweet, man. This has been great. Thanks for your inaugural appearance on the show. Yeah. 
Appreciate you. Uh, we'll get you on more in 2017, I'm sure. We've got a lot of exciting stuff going on at Indy Hall, and you just being here at Indy Hall means that uh, I'm excited for us to be be able to play together more and be able to share the things that we're working on, the lessons we're learning, the mm-hmm. goals that we're setting, um, and the thing that we're working towards together here. So we'll have you on again in the yeah. future. Thanks for having me on. I awesome. Thanks, it. man. Yeah. High five. Hi, I'm Sam. Hey, I'm Adam. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can do us a little favor. Go to iTunes and review and share Coworking Weekly. And you do that by going to coworkingweekly.com slash iTunes. Sam, I really like this show. I, I do. And I want to review the show. I just don't know what to say. Well, you can go really vague like, I love this dang thing. Or you could go a little more specific like, Listen to Coworking Weekly has really made my experience running a co-working space smoother and more thoughtful, and I connect so much more with my members because of it. That is really specific. Yeah. iTunes sees that, and they put the Coworking Weekly show just a little bit higher on the charts. Uh, and, and we want to make sure that more people can find us so we have more stories to share. And that is something that you can directly contribute to. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for being a friend. <laughs> I don't know any more of that song. <laughs> no, that's enough. Enough.